about whether my information on Genesis 2 and 3 is published anywhere. Yes and no, mostly no. Um, I do have a book that I'm working on called The Lost World of Adam and Eve. Uh, so that'll be kind of the sequel, not synoptic, to the, uh, to the Lost World of Genesis 1. Uh, I also, uh, this year there are two things coming out, I believe. Uh, one of them is a Four Views of Adam book, uh, which should be out by the end of the year. And I've written one of the chapters on that that talks about this material. There's another book of Five Views called Reading Genesis 1. And I've done one of the chapters, and it includes this material. Uh, there's an art article in a technical journal called Zygon, Z-Y-G-O-N. And uh, it just came out at the end of 2012, the last issue of 2012. And it's all about uh, human origins. And I have a chapter in there that communicates this. So the Zygon article is already out. The, uh, Reading Genesis 1 and Four Views of Adam are coming out this year. Uh, the Lost World of Adam and Eve is probably not till the end of 2014. Uh, so that's where you can find some of this Genesis 2 and 3 material uh, as it uh, gradually rolls out. Okay. Now, the idea that we have uh, representation by means of an archetype. Okay? Now, the way archetypal representation works, it's almost like everybody is, is embedded in that one individual. So when I talk about Adam being formed from dust, that's saying all of us are formed from dust. When I talk about Eve being made inside of Adam, that means all womankind is made inside of all mankind. And so there's an embedded idea in that representation. There's also, however, another form of representation. Representation uh, can take place as a priest would represent people. And we also find that Adam and Eve serve as representatives in that way. So they not only are representatives archetypally in the forming aspects, but in the Eden elements, they are representatives in priestly roles. Now, where do I get that? Well, first of all, let's start with the idea. Remember that uh, it says it was not good for man to be alone. Now there, God had just given him a task. That task was in Genesis 2, uh, verse 15, to serve and to keep. Now often we tend to think of that as if it's a landscaping task. Uh, harvesting, planting, gardening, those kinds of things. But this is not that kind of burden. Uh, this is a garden that God has planted with trees, a garden park, uh, to provide food for people. But it's far more important than it being a garden is that it is sacred space. God is there. It was typical in the ancient world for luxurious garden parks to be planted next to sacred space. Because the idea was that God's presence brought um, the the fertility and the, the food and those kinds of uh, well, the water sources. And we can see that the Garden of Eden is described in exactly those ways. So again, everyone in the ancient areas would have understood this picture of the Garden of Eden. Because there is 
there is luxury uh, plant in black plant terms, luxury and um, fertility in proximity to sacred space. So it's not so much this is a garden paradise, it's that this is sacred space where God is dwelling. Now, when he's told to serve and keep, uh, the word serve, uh, sometimes uh, translated work, and it can refer to working the ground. As a matter of fact, it does refer to that just earlier in this chapter, in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. There is no man to work the ground. It's this verb. But there, it's the direct object that tells you what kind of activity it is. Throughout the Pentateuch, however, this verb is often used as what priests do to serve in sacred space. All of the priestly duties are described by the same verb. So, if the garden is the object of the, of, the prep, of the infinitive here, to serve, to work the garden, to serve and keep it, the garden, is it the garden as um, agriculture, or is it the garden as sacred space? I think it's the latter, and the reason for that is the second verb. The second verb is not one that's used of gardening work, it's used of sacred space of preserving, keeping sacred space. So by that context, we understand that sacred space is the object, and they are to serve and keep. That is, Adam is being given a priestly role. Now, it's in that context that it says, it is not good for man to be alone. It's a big job, preserving sacred space. And the animals aren't going to help him with it. He goes looking. Right? But there's no one as a helper for him in that task of preserving sacred space. Now, sometimes it, it's incredible, but sometimes we think that somehow when it says it's not good for man to be alone, it's talking about reproduction. Well, that's not only not good, it's, it's, it's not a workable system at all, first of all. And secondly, why would he go looking among the animals? What do we think is going on here? But it's not talking about reproduction. It's introduced his task, his priestly role. And he needs a helper. That helper is not inferior. The word helper does not designate inferiority. As a matter of fact, the one who is most commonly a helper in the biblical text is God. And therefore, it does not contain the element of inferiority. Likewise, it doesn't mean that woman is God. Okay? You've got to take the both of those out of the picture. Okay? The helper idea is that um, is that an ally. Helper indicates an ally. So that's what the woman comes along to do to help him in his priestly role. So helping Eve to help Adam in his sacred tasks as priests, they are representatives of all humans throughout time and space. In one sense, now if there are. If there are other human beings at this time, then the scenario would be that Adam and Eve are selected from among those people. Okay, so if chapters 1 and chapter 2 are sequel, and there are a lot of people created in chapter 1, Adam and Eve, given special understanding of the nature of humanity, in chapter 2, selected from among that group, to serve as representatives in sacred space, serving a priestly role for those people. 
Again, the priestly role makes most sense in that kind of context. We could say that Adam and Eve were representing all of us, yet, yet to come, as priests in sacred space. Uh, so that could work as well. But again, we're just trying to make sure we have the options on the table. So, the disorder of sin entered through them. Here they were given the responsibility for expanding and uh, working with sacred space, preserving it. Instead, what happened? They let disorder in. We'll talk about that more later on. But sin entered through them and therefore permeated the cosmos such that all other humans, whether they were any present then or whether it's only to come after, all other humans were subject to that disorder. Let me talk about original sin concept for just a moment, because obviously this comes into play. How is it that sin is transmitted? Our sinful nature. How is it that original sin is something that came into being and we're subject to? It's not something the Bible describes, though theologians have always been interested in it. It was a matter of theological debate, particularly in the 4th and 5th centuries AD, and as it turns out, you have one view that was by uh, Pelagian, who the, he was, was considered a heretic. Uh, uh, but there was also debate between Augustine and Irenaeus, different viewpoints. The Eastern Church adopted Irenaeus' viewpoint, and you can still find it in Orthodox belief today. The Western Church, uh, Catholicism and then Protestantism, uh, adopted the Augustinian view. The Augustinian view is more of an organic view that, again, obviously Augustine didn't make about genetics, but the idea of a biological, organic passing on of sin is more or less roughly how, how he might have been thinking, although he had a very different idea of biology than what we would today. Uh, Irenaeus's view, as I understand it, again, I'm somewhat out of my field here, so I'm, I'm open to being corrected by those who might know, know better. I'm trying to learn all the time. But Irenaeus' view is more of what I would refer to as the radiation view. That is, instead of passing on sin generation to generation, sin is something that has become endemic in our environment. Um, I use the example of Chernobyl. This went over very well when I was in Ukraine. Um, I use the example of Chernobyl. That is, somebody did something at Chernobyl, and I don't even know if we know who did what or what, what happened, but somebody did something. And that let the radiation out. And once that was done, you couldn't put it back. You couldn't undo it. The whole environment was impacted. All the people were impacted. Everybody born in that region still is impacted by that radiation. And so that's more like the Irenaeus model, as I understand it, that original sin and our sin nature is more what's in the environment that was damaged when Adam and Eve sinned. So again, this is all part of the puzzle. Uh, just like we need church historians working on this puzzle, we need New Testament scholars working on this puzzle, we need history of thought people working on this puzzle, uh, and we need the, the theologians dealing with original sin working on this puzzle. We need geneticists and biologists. I mean, this is, this is something that's truly one of the, the grand uh, collaboratory topics of, of our day. And nobody masters all of this material. Uh, we all just try to work together and come up with things. Uh, I'm privileged to be part of groups that have interdisciplinary discussion on all of this. And I listen to the quantum mechanics people 
and I listen to the neuroscientists, and I listen to the cultural anthropologists and the geneticists, and I try to grab, just grab one piece here and there to try to understand what I can, because they're just not my field of expertise or um, my skills. And so I try to understand what I can. Uh, but there are lots of different people in different fields working on this. The philosophers are there too. Right too. And, uh, so, so it's all part of uh, this group effort to try to understand things. But so that's, that's kind of the model of original sin that I'm inclined toward. Uh, so Adam and Eve, as priests in sacred space, make a choice. We'll talk about that choice a little more later on as well. They make a choice, and, and it's out. Okay? So, I, yeah, I like both these. Um, this, of course, has nothing to do with Adam, but I just like it that it's cut in half. <laughs> this is an interesting one. I stumbled into this one a couple weeks ago in the museum in Sofia, Bulgaria. This is a funerary piece, and this is a figurine that's about this big. And this side is male, that side is female. There's no back, it's two fronts. And it's male and female. This is a funerary piece of a queen um, who is proclaiming herself kind of this embodiment of both male and female in one. And these knuckle bones are the cosmos arranged around her. So uh, male and female, dual image at the center of the cosmos. I just thought it was incredibly intriguing. And so I uh, threw it into the PowerPoint here uh, to kind of show these kind of ideas. This is second, third century BC, Hellenistic period. So archetypes, let's try to sum up some of this. If the details of the forming apply to the archetypes, okay, and here we're talking about the dust and the side. If they pertain to archetypes, we have no information about the forming, material forming of the individuals. It's not that story. Archetypal identity does not negate the existence of the individual. Again, I believe that Adam and Eve were historical individuals, real people in real past. But is the forming about them as individuals in their material formation? I don't think so. More importantly, they are archetypes. The appropriate question then is not, is this really what happened? That is, the history of these individuals. But rather, the question is, is this what people really are? That's the archetypal question. It focuses on their identity, not on some event in the past with a couple individuals and how they came into existence. They represented all of us. We are all dust. We are all gendered. Now, we do have ancient Near Eastern archetypes. I'm not going to go through that. Uh, we've got plenty of ancient Near Eastern texts. Um, I'm not going to go through that. Uh, we'll do this one just very briefly. This is an archetypal uh, representation of the creation of the king. This is Neo-Babylonian. The picture I showed you before was Egyptian. Uh, but here you can see the archetypal. Uh, he's the archetype of king. His features in harmony. Uh, the, uh, he's given battle, he's given crown, he's given throne, he's given weapons, he's given handsome appearance. And so all of these things are the archetypal king. It's not about his material origins. The message of the Genesis archetypes, humankind is created with mortal bodies. We are mortal. This is true of all of us. Humankind is provisioned by God. He planted the garden for food. That's what the text tells us. 
Humankind was given the role of serving in sacred space. That implies a particular special relationship with God. Humankind was divided into male and female, and so would seek out new family relationships. These are the messages of the archetypal understanding of Genesis 2. And again, good theology, important things to recognize. <coughs> now, with regard to material origins, if Genesis 2 has an archetypal focus, there is no biblical account of material human origins. It just doesn't have any claims to make. Now, if the Bible has no claim to make, we can't say, well, the Bible says this, so science's theory must be wrong. We, we can't use it as a filter if it doesn't provide that filter. If it doesn't have a claim to make, then, then we have no biblical position. Biblical position would be whatever happened, God did it. That's not much to go on. And remember, there we're talking about the top layer of the cake, not the bottom layer of the cake. We're talking about that God didn't be together in my mother's womb, not the embryology. And so we can talk about God is the one who made us as human beings, but we don't know what that process was, how long it took, what it looked like. And if God chose to do that through a guided process of change over time, he could do that. This would not say that that is correct. It only says that's, that's a possibility you can put on the table. So it does not mean that common descent, change over time, is true, only that it would not contradict the biblical record. You still have to decide whether you think that's good science or not. Maybe you don't think it is. That's fine. Maybe you think it is good science. That's fine, too. But the Bible's not making a claim. So there's no filter to work here. Remember that there is special direct creative work of God found minimally at the functional level. Okay, something that we rarely separate out, but that I think we need to separate out. We've got the question of material continuity or discontinuity. And we've got the question of spiritual continuity or discontinuity. Let me explain what I mean. Material continuity would be basically common descent, change over time, human beings evolved. That would be material continuity with other species. Material discontinuity would be if God did whatever he did with all the other creatures, but human beings were a special material act of God. That would be material discontinuity. Spiritual continuity would be if everything about us spiritually had continuity with other species. Nobody believes that. Maybe a couple of real radical people do. But anyway, um, but spiritual discontinuity would be, of course, that God created us distinct spiritually from all other creatures. Now, most people have thought that material and spiritual go together. That if you have spiritual discontinuity, you have to have material discontinuity. Okay? They don't split those apart. They can be split apart. You could feasibly, feasibly have material continuity and spiritual discontinuity. Again, just another model to consider. It's a possible way to, to put a, a model together. Now, 
to talk then about this spiritual discontinuity, even if there would be material continuity, just for argument's sake, even if there would be, there would still need to be direct creative work of God in the, on the spiritual side. First of all, endowing with God's image. That's not something that can evolve. God's image is something that God gave us as our identity, as the function that we have. That's not something that evolves. It's something that God gives. And when God gives the image of God, that is a creative act. Remember, creation has to do with functions in the, the biblical context. Secondly, the creation of spiritual being. We believe that there is more to us than our biological organism. We believe that we are spiritual beings. And we believe that when the body dies, the spiritual being, whether you call it soul or spirit, it doesn't matter terminology right now, but that spiritual part of us, that continues to exist. This is our Christian belief. That spiritual being cannot evolve. You can talk about all kinds of things that can evolve in neuroscience, but spiritual being is not one of them. We don't evolve a soul. That's something that God has to give. That is a creative act. That would be spiritual discontinuity. You could feasibly then, again, I'm not promoting scientific viewpoints, but in terms of possible models, you could feasibly have material continuity, spiritual discontinuity, in which God specially created us as human beings in these ways. Also, the designation is priest. That's something that only God can give. Now, we've talked about these categories. Order is connected to sacred space. Okay, when we talk about God creating, God bringing order, all of that is connected to sacred space. That is, order emanates from God. Even today, the order that we enjoy is because God is, is here. Order comes from God. In that sense, God's creating role is a continuing thing. We often distinguish between creator and sustainer. If we think of creation in functional terms, those two are closer than we usually think. See, when we only think about creation as a house story, we think of it as historical past. God created, that's over and done with. When we think of it as functions in the home, God is maintaining the home. And therefore, creative work is an ongoing work of God as functions are sustained. God is the center of that, the center of order. And that's sacred space. When God is there, it establishes sacred space. Non-order remained after creation. We talked about this. The sea is still there. Darkness is still there. God brought order into the midst of non-order. People are given a task of expanding sacred space and the order, subdue and rule. Greg Deal talks a lot about this in his book, uh, Temple and the Mission of the Church, uh, where he and I were very much in, in communication, and uh, he uses basically my material as he introduces uh, his, his own work with the uh, role of the church. Subdue and rule, we're supposed to be expanding sacred space. After all, the garden is a limited space. That was to be expanded. That's why it says, this river went there, this river went there. That's where those things are found that can enhance sacred space. 
The presence of God is what brought life. Again, there's a tree that's given that role, but whatever life the tree had to offer, it wasn't just because of magical fruit, it was because of God. In God there is life. Did I mention Deuteronomy 30 last night? I'm not sure that I did. Moses talking to the Israelites, saying, uh, with the law, summing up the law, I have set before you the path of life and the path of death. He's just done the um, curses and blessings of the covenant. There is life found in the, in the presence of God, in the favor of God, in the relationship with God. That is life. Death is found in ignoring the covenant, being unfaithful to it, disobeying its commands. So I've said before you the path of life, the path of death. Choose life. Choose God. Choose relationship. Choose faithfulness to the covenant. Life is found in God. The serpent as chaos, is a chaos creature promoting disorder. In the Old Testament, they would not, thought of the, would not have thought of the serpent as Satan. We can make that connection. We can point to some New Testament texts. I don't have a problem with that. But Old Testament would not have made that connection. They didn't say, oh, this serpent is Satan. They don't have that information. They don't have that connection. They don't have that understanding of Satan. <laughs> they would have been more likely to see the serpent as a chaos creature. <clears throat> now, a chaos creature uh, in the ancient world is not an evil creature. It's uh, a creature that um, is sort of uncommitted. It's a, it's a freelance agent. Um, they, they just bring havoc. Um, they don't necessarily have a will. They don't necessarily have a morality. Uh, if you want to understand it, if you think about how we might think about a tornado, we don't see a tornado as volitional. The tornado decided to take a left turn there. So we don't think of the tornado as moral. Okay? It's, it's a phenomenon that happens, and it, it does great damage. And that's typically how they would have thought of chaos creatures in the ancient world. Not volitional, not moral. They work quite instinct, and they do what they do. Um, and they are creatures of non-order. Uh, Leviathan in the Old Testament uh, would be in that category, uh, things of that sort. So the idea of seeing the serpent as a creature of non-order. Now, you usually probably imagine the serpent entwined in the branches of the tree that has been forbidden. Do we get that from the text? Does the text even say that the serpent was in the garden? No. Are Adam and Eve restricted to the garden? No. So we have all kinds of ideas that have no substantiation in the text. They, yes? The text can say that they were driven out of the garden? In terms of their ability to have access to it, yes. And they could, they could stay in the garden all they wanted, but they were not restricted to it. They may have lived in it. We don't know. They may have come to it regularly. We don't know. But is, it, is it that kind of arguing, arguing a little bit from silence? Both are arguing from silence. Are we? Both, both are arguing from silence. Yes? 
serpent being crafty and the previous uh, naked, there's something that... Well, certainly there's a wordplay going on there. It's a significant wordplay. It contrasts the situation of the people with the serpent. But again, chaos creatures are portrayed in lots of different characteristics. There's the, something the about nakedness or the, the word in the Near Eastern? <laughs> uh, no, there's not. Um, uh, usually nakedness is, is associated with uncivilized. Uh, but we can't necessarily bring that in here. I don't have that established in biblical text. So the serpent is there as a chaos creature promoting disorder, not as a disordered creature, a non-ordered creature, but in what he suggests, disorder enters. People want to be the center of order. That is the nature of the fall. The fall is not disobedience. The fall is not eating fruit. The fall is people succumbing to the temptation that you can be like God. That's what the serpent says. You can be like God. What would being like God entail to them? God is the source and center of order. That's the order that they enjoyed living in the garden. You can be like God. That is, you can be the source and center of order. The tree of wisdom. Wisdom is the perception and pursuit of order. A tree of wisdom that would make them the source and center of order. They can be like God. Now, in trying to, to accomplish that, yes, indeed, they eat fruit they're not supposed to eat. Yes, indeed, they disobey. Those are facts on the ground. But the fall is taking steps to be like God. And there's no room for two sources of order in sacred space. And so they're driven out. So they wanted to be the center of order themselves, and God says... Good luck with that. And they lose access to his presence. Sin then brought disorder. And again, that disorder can be seen in the radiation model that I mentioned earlier. They are cast from sacred space into a less ordered realm where they could try to see how they did with making themselves the center of order. And that's the story of human fallenness. Always trying to make ourselves the center of order. To bring the world into orbit around ourselves. I'm not going to do that. We don't have time. Oh, you'll love that stuff, but we don't have time for it. I don't have time for that. No, I want to give enough time for discussion. So I'm not going to do that. Sorry. Okay, let's talk just a moment about this. There's a lot of misunderstanding about evolution. Matter of fact, some people talk to me and say, don't even use the word. The minute you use the word, you're in trouble. Okay? And of course, there's an extent to which that's true. Uh, particularly when I was in Eastern Europe, where, where evolution, atheism, and communism were, were uh, tightly woven, you know, the three-stranded rope. You know, it, you just couldn't separate them. And so to suggest that there might be some viewpoints in which an evolutionary model would be okay, to them is just horrific. That's like saying communism and atheism are okay. And they couldn't see a way to separate them, so I had to talk to them about that a lot. What do we mean when we talk about evolution? Of course, you know, you're all used to the, the macro, micro, the capital E, the small e, all of those kinds of things, and those are helpful distinctions. 
but uh, just in terms of definition, we have to think about it a little bit. Uh, it's an interpretation of the world around us that posits a material continuity. Material continuity among all species of creatures. Now that's biological and genetic, it's not spiritual. Again, remember trying to separate out those spiritual and material issues. But material continuity is at the heart of this kind of model. Okay? That's due to a process of change over time. That's at the heart of what evolutionary thinking has, change over time. Through a ver variety, through various mechanisms, known and unknown. That's important. Lots of Christians who are not in the sciences still think that it's all a matter of mutation and natural selection. Uh, from what I understand from all of the people that I listen to, that's, that's not necessarily the case anymore. I mean, they still, still some consider it important. There are many other models on the table, and some consider uh, certainly uh, those elements, they're, they're true, but they may not be the primary mechanisms. A lot of discussion about that in the sciences. Change over time is key. The mechanisms are not key. Change over time is key. Okay? It is not inherently atheistic or deistic. Uh, atheistic, of course, they, the atheists want to use evolution as a weapon against Christianity. The fact that they might be atheists doesn't mean that evolution is atheistic. After all, a shovel can be a weapon, but it's not made to be a weapon. And it has very productive uses. So we shouldn't think of evolution as an ideological weapon. That already puts us in a bad position to think clearly. Likewise, um, it's not necessarily deistic. Uh, when people talk about theistic evolution, the historical position of theistic evolution was typically a deistic one. That is, God kind of kicked stuff off, but then stood back from the process. Okay, today, uh, an organization like BioLogos, they're more inclined to talk about evolutionary creation. Evolutionary creation means that God is in the process of creating through a guided evolutionary model. Change over time that is guided by God fully invested in that process. Evolutionary creation. When I was in Eastern Europe, they could hardly believe it that I actually knew people who were good scientists and good Christians and who believed in evolution, evolutionary creation, and that they really were devout, sincere, solid, sound Christians. They didn't know anybody like that. And I had to persuade them that, yes, yes, there are people like that. I know them. They're good people. They're great Christian people. And they, they just were having trouble putting that all together in their minds. And in some places in the United States, that continues to be a problem. Evolution automatically is the tool of the devil. It automatically is something that's, that's against Christianity. And this warfare mentality exists. But that's because people who have taken the Bible seriously have come to believe that the Bible presents a competing, contradictory model that evolution won't fit with. And that's why we've been talking about what model, what claims does the Bible make. Evolutionary creation, creationists see evolution as fully guided by God. God involved all the way through. So, and, and the model can be used that way. Godless people are going to choose evolution as their origins model. But evolution is not inherently godless. Certainly that's the choice that godless people are going to make. 
but that's not our, our problem. Godless people are going to configure evolution as purposeless, but it doesn't need to be that. Evolution can just as easily be guided purposefully. Now again, I'm not promoting evolutionary creation, but people who believe in evolutionary creation have seen easy ways to mold what biologists refer to as evolutionary processes change over time with a God-guided process. Uh, yeah, these are lots of the questions we've talked about all along. These are questions that most people have when they read Genesis. And the position that I presented addresses most of these and offers ways to understand them. Uh, but I'm not going to go through them all today. But I have talked about lots of them along the way. We have to start thinking about how we interact with those who believe differently than we do. And the church does not, does not do well with this. Whether the issue is eschatology or theories of atonement or um, yeah, you know, Calvinism or Manianism, uh, we just don't do good with, with this. We get entrenched in our own ways of thinking. <laughs> and uh, the fact is, the tent should be big enough for the people who take Bible and theology seriously and can build a credible case for their view. It might not be the case you accept. You know, can, can a Calvinist argue that an Armenian can be legitimate in their interpretation? I, I hope so, but it's not always that way. Can a complementarian say, I don't believe in egalitarian ways of thinking, but they're handling scripture faithfully, they just come to different conclusions I do. How big's the tent? Do we have room for differences of interpretation in this tent that is the church? I listened to a blog of a very famous preacher, you know the name if I, if I said it, um, just the other day. He was being interviewed about all of this. He's a very, um, uh, very militant, young earth kind of person. Um, and when asked about biologos, and even specifically about Bruce Waltke, he says, I, I don't think they're really Christians. Now, I'm sorry, what's happening here is that we're encumbering the gospel. You know, I mean, no one gave that preacher a seat at St. Peter's Gate there to say, who gets in? Who's a Christian? Who's not? And it seems to me Christ talks about himself being the way, not science, and your view of science, and your view of the age of the earth, and your view of evolution as being the way. And so we end up encumbering the gospel. This is not a matter of who's a Christian or not. Post-trib or pre-trib is not a matter of who's a Christian or not. Egalitarian or complementarian is not a matter of who's a Christian or not. Baptist and Presbyterian is not a matter of who's a Christian or not. We're going to have differences of opinion. But how do we deal with those people who have come to different conclusions than us? They will know we are Christians by our love. We've got to start thinking about the tent. Not just about our own particular viewpoints. Acceptance of science does not require rejection of Bible or faith. We don't have to work with the warfare mentality. What claims is the Bible making? Now, 
You may not agree with the interpretation I've offered of scripture, and that's fine. I really have nothing personally vested in how many people walk out of here agreeing with me or not. It really doesn't matter to me, and I'll never know. Because I'm not here to change your mind. But I would very much like to make sure that our attitudes are in check. It's not so much what position you adopt, but how do you think about others who might adopt a different position? Maybe somebody else likes the position I offer and finds that as a way to accept a whole range of scientific options, which I wouldn't necessarily accept. But they can do a legitimate job of interpreting scripture, of working with theology, that leads me to say, well, that's, that's fine. So in conclusion, and good, we'll have some good time for questions. In conclusion, three things I want to point out. <coughs> By the way, my son calls this Trinity. Uh, this is one of his drawings. Uh, you can see that it uh, has a material aspect to it at one level. But he's got, um, got the Father and the cross there, okay, creating by means of God the Son, and the Spirit. Who, which he controversially decided, controversially decided to um, present as a woman. Um, it's interesting, the Hebrew word for spirit is a feminine, grammatically feminine form. But at any rate, uh, it's, it's an interesting portrayal, I think, of the Trinity involved in creation. But back to the topic. Why is all this very important to us? First of all, we have plenty of science people in our, in our churches, and lots of you are some of those people. And I don't know how you feel here. It seems to me like it's a fairly welcoming atmosphere here, but in many churches in our country, it is not a welcoming atmosphere. And so our science people uh, find themselves in a guild where the minute they are identified as people of faith, they are marginalized, perhaps ostracized, face hurdles, uh, that are difficult because they are people of faith working in a discipline where faith is not uh, something that gets them ahead. And so they come into the doors of the church hoping to find support, encouragement, fellowship as people of faith working in a difficult field. And I remember the story of uh, one of my colleagues at Wheaton told me she walks into a church for the first time being friendly and saying, so what do you do? She says, I teach. And sometimes they'll say, what do you teach? Biology. <laughs> and the next question is, is, uh, is a given. What do you think of evolution? <laughs> and suddenly, awkward moments. How do you talk about that? What happens is our science folks come into our churches and instead of feeling welcomed and supported, embraced, encouraged, they are asked to out themselves. And if they've accepted certain scientific conclusions, they also find themselves marginalized, ostracized in the doors of the church. We're not doing a very good job of ministry to our science people. Secondly, there are plenty of people in the university just around the corner here who are intrigued by the claims of Christ. 
they're interested in the gospel. They've met Christians that they respect. And they've got questions and they ask them. And as we deal with evangelism, what kind of message are we putting out there? Lots of folks that come to the church and, and kind of are, are asking questions come to the conclusion that if they're going to become a Christian, they've got to jettison some cargo. Uh, they've already accepted evolution, but they're going to have to get rid of that. They've already accepted uh, the old age of the earth. They're going to have to get rid of that. They're going to be a Christian. And we end up conveying a message that there's a war, that there's a choice, that you have to choose Bible or science. And if you can't get rid of that, that science stuff, well, you know, you, you really can't become a Christian. Shame on us if we ever do that. Again, we're encumbering the gospel. The gospel is not about what you believe about evolution or the age of the earth. The gospel is about being in relationship with Jesus Christ. We have to get that straight. And not kind of pushing people away who have already made certain scientific choices. And thirdly and finally, we're hemorrhaging badly. Young people in our churches. But part of that is because we set up the scenario. We've told them that, that it's a war. We've told them they have to make choices. We've told them you either believe the Bible or you believe science. You can't have it both ways. And when they get out into the university and even into the high schools and start finding out there's a very persuasive case to be made for evolution or for popula uh, population genetics or for geological uh, fossils and all of these things, when they find out there's a very persuasive case to be made, they say, well, boy, I, I believe that's true. And I've been told that means I've got to pretty much yeah, leave the faith, reject the Bible, reject Christ. And so they make that choice. Not true. Sometimes that's just a, one of many issues. You know, we have to recognize that. But the fact is, it's one that doesn't have to be there. The new atheists want to say there's a war. You either choose enlightened knowledge and intelligence with science and evolution and all of that, or you choose the church and the Bible. And there's a war going on. And many of our conservative Christians tell us there's a war going on. And the Bible is a defense against this godless science. And if you're going to choose the Bible, you have to go through that grid and therefore reject lots of those scientific conclusions. Both of those positions, you wouldn't think they have a lot in common, but they do. They've got the warfare mentality in common. They only come with the idea that the Bible has made certain claims that rule out certain scientific conclusions. And as I've suggested in our time so far, I don't think that's the case. I think we've misjudged the Bible's claims. And we've therefore set up the warfare that really is not there. There's a story about the Japanese squadron that was placed on an island uh, toward the end of World War II and told to defend that island. And gradually through skirmishes and through other means, uh, all of them died except one. 
that one soldier still took very seriously his job to defend that island against the enemy. For 20 years, he was defending that island against the enemy, not knowing that the war had ended. And every attempt to tell him that the war had ended, he rejected as propagandistic, trying to deter him from his task of defending that island. And so there he was, defending an island when there was no enemy and there was no war. Have we put ourselves in that situation? As Christians, there are hills to die on. I'm not sure this is one. The war's over if you want it. Thanks. <coughs> well, it's time for questions. I hope you have a lot to ask. We've got time. Yes, sir. So I'm hung up on it. What a surprise. <laughs>
Yes, sir. So, so the, the function of the genealogies in Genesis then are not necessarily, not chronological and not descendants, but they are, are, are those archetypes? Are no. those priests? No, no, I would say that that is, uh, that is a, a descendants list. Mm -hmm. um, again, it just doesn't necessarily cover all of humanity. It might, it might not, um, but it's still descendants. Uh, at the same time, we do have to ask the question, and we don't have an answer. How does the understanding of genealogies in the ancient world differ from our understanding of genealogies? There is enough evidence to say it's different, but there's not enough evidence to say exactly what, what is it. Um, so um, we do know that in the ancient world there are not examples of fictitious individuals being put in archetypes, or even, I'm sorry, being put in genealogies, or even archetypal individuals who are purely archetypal. We don't even have purely archetypal indi um, individuals. They are individuals. They are believed to exist. And so the nature of genealogies, again, suggests to me that Adam and Eve should be viewed as historical people. Um, that's, that's how genealogies work from everything that we can tell in the ancient world. But you can't just add up the ages to get to the, the age of the, the earth. Again, genealogies are not necessarily covering every generation. They're picking up high points. And they're communicating things very different. Um, the, even the numbers. And what do the numbers refer to in genealogies? We easily think that it refers to the, well, the number of years a person lives. How, how hard can it be? Well, let me give you an example. In, uh, I've got a friend in Indonesia. And he was talking to me about his experience there. He said that um, he was talking to a woman, uh, kind of a leader in the community there. And, uh, he asked a question which was OK in that culture. It wouldn't be OK in ours. He asked her how old she was. I didn't tell you the story last night, but I'm hearing these lectures so often. I'm trying to remember who I told her story. She said she was 40 years old. And he kind of cataloged that away. OK, fine. Two years later, he's back in the same area, encounters the same woman. And asks the same question. How old are you? She says, I'm 50 years old. <laughs> so wait a minute. Um, I, you know, excuse me, I don't mean to, to be a problem, but I, I was just here two years ago when you said you were 40. She said, yeah, I was. He said, but, but now you say you're 50. Yeah, I am. OK, I'm not understanding. Right, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> she says, when I said I was 40, I meant that I have the stature and respect and credibility in the community that a 40-year-old would have. And now I'm 50, which means I have the stature, respect, and credibility in the community that a 50-year-old would have. I was 40, now I'm 50. He said, well, I wouldn't have felt the numbers meant that. See the outsider-insider thing? High context, low context. Okay? The number had a rhetorical value not just a quantitative value. That made him a little more at ease later on when he was introduced as a 50-year-old, even though he was only 35. <laughs> <laughs> so we have to recognize that different cultures do different things with numbers. And there can be rhetorical value to numbers, not just quantifiers. So unless we know that they're using it specifically and only for quantification, we cannot assume that in an ancient culture. Some, some information. Yes, sir. Well, I'd like to start by just saying thank you very much for coming here.
Um, the question I have is, uh, in having given this talk and worked in this area for a long time, uh, what do you consider to be the most significant, in terms of importance, not frequency, objections to your thesis? Of course, you know, lots of people just have difficulty stepping out of their preconceived notions. That lots of people think they've got this figured out, and so to be told something different. Uh, lots of people have trouble even accepting the possibility that evolution should be on the table for consideration. <clears throat> but in terms of the specifics of my position, the most frequently voiced objection is exactly the one that's already come up here. <clears throat> that is, it looks to us like the account of Genesis 1 is so material. It looks that way to us. It feels that way to us. And even though people say, okay, I, I see how you're doing this function thing, and that makes some sense, but then they say, but can it be both? Can it be both material and functional? Now, my answer is, well, yes, theoretically, it could. And God can communicate whatever way he wants, and it, it theoretically could. Certainly the Israelites believe in a material world, and they believe that God is the maker of that, and this is an origins account. But again, you have to offer demonstration. You can't assume that because it's most natural for us to think about material, that it must therefore be material. You can't accept that as a default just because it's the way we normally think. You have to prove it. Just like I have to prove functional, you would have to prove material. Now, that proof of material could come in terms of um, the, the observations we're going to make in a passage. Uh, we were just discussing a moment ago the idea, well, it says emerge and sprout. I mean, let's look at the language here. That's certainly one level of discussion. But I, I look at the bigger account, and I ask the question, what, what here really makes us think that we're dealing with a material account? Again, look at the nature of the verbs, look at the nature of the starting point, look at the nature of what's happening on each day. I mean, how many times on each day do we actually have something happening? Do we have material events taking place? Day one, light is not material, time is not material. Day two, uh, if there's a solid sky, they might view that as material, but we don't believe that's material. Space is not material. Day three, there are material discussions, as we talked about, but it's still let, let them happen. Okay, day four, we have sun, moon, and stars, which to them are not material and not objects. Where do we have the material stuff going on here? So you have to demonstrate that. And again, you get to day seven, and the most important part of the passage, and that's not a material issue at all. So it becomes an issue of, can you prove that it's material? And that's, that's, how I would, that's how I would approach it. But that's the objection I most often get. Yeah, but I'm not interested in what you get most often. I'm interested in what you think are the most damaging criticisms to your viewpoint. Oh, well. <laughs> I, the, the toughest sell, the, the one that I feel, um, I wouldn't call it a stretch, 
but the one that I feel is the toughest one to sell and therefore the most possible weakness is regarding what I talked about last night with the verb asap. Trying to demonstrate that that doesn't mean make. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's the, in one sense, that's the most vulnerable part of the position. I'm just trying to connect a, a couple dots, do some math here. Um, you said that Genesis 2 is possibly a sequential to Genesis 1, the sequel. Genesis 1, God creates humanity in his image in mass. Genesis 2, we kind of Adam and Eve and their functional roles as, as priests and archetypes. But they're the only ones that had access to the tree of life. So is death occurring in image bearers outside the garden? Uh, if there are other people, they would be outside the garden and they would be dying. They would have hope for life through Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve's access to the tree of life, uh, just like the priests in Israel had access to life by relationship with God, and they made that available to people, okay? And they instructed people that they're caring for sacred space, making that life in relationship to God available. <coughs> so Adam and Eve become the hope of humankind. So that's how it would work if you had that scenario, that there were other people around. That's how it would work. Yes, sir. Yes. Um, well, I have two questions, but uh, the first one that, that's probably easier for me to ask is uh, you had mentioned towards the end that acceptance of science does not require rejection of Bible or faith. Do you think there's a converse uh, that we can, there's many claims about science that we can, that are open on the table. Um, are there claims about science that we ought to question? Absolutely. And if, if so, and, and this is related to my other question, but the functionary account, science deals with functions. And so is there a point in tension um, as well as a bridge in that? Because you've, you've focused on the material, but science still deals with functions. And, and that's what this account is about. But science can only deal with material functions, biological functions, chemical functions. It can only deal with the house story. Okay, this is not about the house, the functions in the biblical account. These are functions of the, of the home, of how it works for people, and science really can't address that. So certainly, yes, I mean, science does deal with functions in the house, how the electricity works, if I push that analogy. Sure. So they wouldn't be competing claims. Again, science can't address God living in this place. Science doesn't have anything to say on that, so science doesn't have those claims. Some scientists, of course, make claims. That's a different thing. Sure, like God has no part in this hypothesis. Right, exactly. But at that point, they're not talking to scientists. They're talking as individuals with beliefs. Okay, so, uh, but I think you're correct in your first statement. Likewise, just as we have to be very careful to understand what claims the Bible legitimately makes, we have to ask the question, what claims science can legitimately make? Okay, and of course, any scientist recognizes that science is in continual flux and continual change, and we're taking a look at all of these things. It's only when science kind of filters down to kind of high school biology that suddenly things are given the, the, uh, the weight of dogmatism. Uh, 
but I think that as science actually has done, I mean, if you keep up with the literature and evolutionary biology and population genetics, you see that there's changes taking place all the time in how they try to understand things. And again, even in uh, Darwinian evolution or neo-Darwinian evolutionary thinking, uh, there's, there's changes, pretty major ones, taking place all the time as they try to make everything fit. If I could just quickly, uh, like the question that's coming up in terms of function is form follows function. And that the home implies the house. Uh, which implies the material and how it got there. And of course, it won't, uh, certainly as theists, we need to conclude that the major thing about the house is that God, it's, it's, uh, God is responsible for the house. Um, and so I, I guess I'm not seeing the nice, clean, neat distinction of separating material from function. And so, it, so if, if God presents function, in the Genesis account, that it was seen that uh, he did that by uh, bringing about a certain form, a material form, not maybe not origin, but at least the material, because the human body, I mean, certainly he, we have a certain function and therefore we have a certain form that follows from that. I mean, he didn't give us, he didn't give Amoebas the image of God, because we have a different material. So, uh, you're absolutely right. You know, you, you have to have the form for the function, and you have to have the material there. Uh, but again, remember, I'm asking the question, what story is the text telling? Right. Um, remember the example I used last night of the play? Yeah. Well, now, the play assumes that the theater has been built. The play assumes that the stage has been built. The costumes have been made. The cast has been selected. But that's just not the story. You can't have the play taking place if none of that has happened. So yes, they're integrally related, but still, you have the question of which story is being told. Right, and I get that that's the focus, but there's still corollaries that can, I'm wondering, aren't there secondary points that can be drawn? I mean, I, I hear it's not the point of the text, and I, I hear your case, and I'm like, well, that really makes sense. So I'm not questioning what your case. I'm wondering what, what can be applied, because we could, we, one way to apply is that, okay, this is functionary account, therefore science has nothing to say about this. But what's going on in my mind, well, wait a second, science deals with functions. But not these kind of functions. It's not the home functions. Science deals with biological functions or physical functions, chemically functions. That's still the house story. <clears throat> That's not the home story. We need to move okay. on to some other sure, sure. yeah, questions. Thank I'm sorry. For that. Yeah. Last night you said that you teach sixth graders in Sunday school. I do. Which just blew me away when you said that. <laughs> Can you tell us how what you've been sharing this morning about interplays about what you're doing? Sure. Um, when I teach kids about this stuff, I don't <coughs> I don't tell them this is not about the material origins. <laughs> I just talk to them about the functions. I talk to them about how God makes this place work. I talk to them about how this is God's home and God's place and where his guests in it. In other words, I emphasize what the text is instead of making a point about what it isn't. The time will come for them to learn more about what it isn't. And do they come back to you with questions from science class? Or, or um, are they too young? 
Not, not too much, but they occasionally do. Yeah. I mean, they always want to know about the dinosaurs. <laughs> I say that's part of the house story. You know, I can talk about house and home story. And I can tell them about the Bible being more interested in the home story than the house story. Okay. Again, I don't necessarily get to the point with them about saying this is not a house story. Or, you know, it's, it, I'll ease it in. Yes? So, um, going back to last night, you, you started off by situating the authority of Scripture in the, the way the original audience would have, mm-hmm. would have read it. It seems like the way the, the, way the original audience would have received Genesis disappeared fairly early on and was mostly gone for a very long time in the history of the church. And so I'm just wondering if, if, um, if you thought at all about how the church has interacted with with these early passages is authoritative, and how the work that you're doing and other biblical scholars and biblical theologians, how that work then interacts with how, for, you know, most of the 2,000 years of church history, we have theologians and biblical scholars have not understood it that way. Now, again, I'm not even disagreeing so much with that claim that the authority is in the way the original audience would have heard it, but just that um, how, do, how do we then look back and say, how do we interact with um, well, of course, we, we don't want to overplay the, the distinction that this, this view existed in the ancient world for thousands of years. Sure. Okay. The fact that the, the Hellenism steamrolled the, the ancient world and, and had a big impact and we thought differently for 2,000 years. Um, you know, it's, it's not like it was only for a few moments and now it's thousands of years. Um, how do we interact with that? Well, again, uh, remember that even in early church history, they didn't have a uh, um, dominating material view. They thought of material view as they understood it. But remember, even as far as the Reformation, they're still asking questions about the solid sky and what it's made of and how thick it is and things like that. Because right along with angels dancing on the head of a pin, um, it's that's that's just three or four hundred years ago. And they were still progressing with their understanding of the material cosmos. Um, so they always talk about the material cosmos in terms that they understood at their present time, and again, thought that the Bible was addressing those things, but they had much less trouble with it when they actually believed in the solid sky, uh, just as the biblical authors did. Um, how do we interact with it? We have to recognize that any time period has its limitations, including ours. And that uh, every time period is trying to do their best to interpret text as well as they can. And we all have limitations with that. And whatever tools we might have that can help us overcome our limitations, we want to use them. Yes, sir. I just want to get a short summary again of what you told us about the image of God. The last one was a substitute, but there were three. Yeah. Function, identity, substitute. Function. Mm-hmm. What did you mean exactly? That God says that uh, we are to subdue and rule in his name. So we have this function to carry out. Yes? A few questions. Number one, uh, you said original sin was not the disobedience necessarily, but the desire to be like God and be the center of creating order out of disorder. Uh, I, I'm having trouble seeing how you made that jump from them eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil all they gain is knowledge of good and evil. How do you make that jump that they gain the knowledge of creating order out of disorder? Question one. Question two. Um, you described
serpent as being a being of chaos without a real will to do evil. When does Satan come into play? A willful Satan that prowls like a lion and is ready to pounce. Yes and no. Of course, the information I draw about Paul is from the statement of the servant that you can be like God. That's what's attractive to them. You can be like God with the knowledge of evil. Right, and you'll become like us, God says. You'll become like us knowing good and evil. But that knowledge of good and evil is equivalent to wisdom. He says the fruit looked good to make one wise. When we see knowledge of good and evil used throughout the Old Testament, it refers to wisdom. Uh, the wisdom to make sound judgments, the wisdom to understand issues and the nature of things. It's, it's a broad topic. Uh, the, um, the book of Proverbs, of course, deals with wisdom. Uh, again, I would say as the pursuit, the perception and pursuit of order. And so this idea of making themselves the center of order, that's how they will be like God. The wisdom they gave will give them the ability to be order breakers, order makers themselves as a center of it. So that's how we make that connection, trying to use the textual information as much as I can. Uh, in terms of when does Satan come into play, uh, it's really not until the Hellenistic period, the intertestamental period, where we start seeing the development of Satan as we come to know him and hate him uh, in the, the New Testament text. Uh, again, that doesn't mean that Satan evolved. It only means that they came to understand better who he was. And the New Testament picture is one that uh, we adopt, that we accept, as that's what, what Satan has always been. Uh, but uh, the association of him with the serpent is something that we get in the New Testament period. What about where Satan incites the number of people? Uh, there, um, we, that's, of course, Chronicles, that's the end of Chronicles, and Chronicles is the last book of the Old Testament. So we've already started perhaps to move that direction. There's a question whether there is a personal name or a function. Uh, Satan, of course, is a Hebrew verb and a Hebrew noun, and it refers to an adversary, a challenger, an opponent, and can refer to any number of different beings who serve that role. So just because you're not saying Satan wasn't there. Correct. That we didn't associate Satan with the serpent until the New Testament. Correct. Okay. The, the revelation did not. You're also not saying. I don't think that Satan was not associated with a being in the That's correct. It's, it's a matter of revelation and what we understand rather than the nature of what he really is and what he does. Because he seems to be associated with being in the book of Job, which is rather ancient text. Um, yeah. Yes, but even there, um, it uses the definite article and therefore refers to a particular function and not necessarily to the same being as the person that we call Satan, the individual we call Satan in the New Testament. I know that's I, I an abrupt statement to make at two minutes till 12. <laughs> uh, but I do have a commentary on Job, and you can read all about it there. Uh, the fact is, we even have the angel of the Lord serving as a Satan. That's the stunning piece of information in the Balaam story. The angel of the Lord stands before Balaam and his donkey as a Satan. So we can see that just because he can perform that function doesn't mean it's the evil being, Satan, that we know from the New Testament. The function is more, more widespread. So then is the being who challenges uh, God about Job in the book of Job, is that Satan? 
or is it just a being that's serving that function? And it's not straightforward. Again, it uses a definite article, so it's not a personal name. Hmm. You don't want to get that commentary. If you have other questions, here's Dr. Walton's cell phone. Call often, call late. No, Dr. Walton, uh, please uh, let us show up. seminar. Uh, thank you for your preparation and, and the research and just how well you presented make it accessible to us all too. Uh, the next seminar on the calendar right now is February 2014. Uh, Dr. Paul Copen uh, is going to come and present on Is God a Moral Monster? Uh, one of the oft-argued, uh, oft-posited uh, arguments from the new atheists that when you look at the Old Testament, he's just a horrible, horrible being. Uh, so he's going to lead us in an investigation of that. Uh, it's going to be great. We are also working on a seminar on the life and work of C.S. Lewis, uh, hopefully in the fall of 2013. Uh, so we'll keep you attuned to that. Uh, again, please, uh, the DVDs are available. The $2 donation is suggested. And there are uh, the books there that you can feel free to order. Now.